Hello, I'm Evans Marajas, the Harry T. Wilkes Artistic Director for Cincinnati Opera. On this podcast, my guest is composer Gregory Spears. In 2016, Gregory, along with Greg Pierce and Kevin Newberry, made operatic history in Cincinnati with the world premiere of their opera, Fellow Travelers. It has gone on to already nine productions all over the United States, and more are being scheduled as we speak. Greg has an unusual background, starting out as a pianist and growing up in a smaller town, but eventually finding his voice as a composer, not only in instrumental music, but in the rarefied world of opera. Greg is now in the throes of finishing his second opera for Cincinnati Opera, Castor and Patience. And we'll save most of that conversation for another time. But on this occasion, we talk about the voices that have given rise to the creativity of Greg Spears. Greg, you and I first met at uh, the workshop for fellow travelers. Um, gosh, it seems like a, a lifetime ago already. But even then, you were already, uh, I wouldn't call you a veteran opera composer, but you'd already been on the road to writing opera. What was your very first venture into the world of opera? Well, that's an interesting question. And, and you know, it depends on 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 how you how you define opera. In, in a way, I want to define it as my first venture into the world of the operatic voice, in a way. Perfect. Um, and that would probably be, actually composing for the operatic voice would be with an organization called uh, the American Opera Project. And they have a, a program that's still going today called Composers in the Voice. And it's where they invite composers in to work with uh, six resident singers writing songs for those singers over a year. And you get a sort of a tight deadline of three weeks to write a song. And then you come in and workshop the song with the singer. And you start this this long dialogue with singers. And you also get to see your colleagues writing for the same singer. And so there's this, this really um, fruitful relationship, which emerges from that over a year. And then at the end of the program, you're asked to write a scene. And and so I really fell in love writing for the operatic voice in that environment. And, um, and I think it, you know, I always loved opera. Um, and, you know, I'd gone to the Met, of course. I was living in New York City at the time. And, um, I'd, you know, I'd gone to the opera growing up, the Virginia Opera. Um, but it was really, for me, it, it took being in a room with singers and really hearing singers talk about their voice and really hearing that the uh, the power of the unamplified human voice up close that I think just electrified me. And I, and I think that was my entry point. Sometimes I ask people, what do you like best about opera? And I sometimes joke, there's only one answer. And that is, you know, the, the first answer should always be singers, which I, I'm sure there are other answers that are, that are acceptable. But like for me, I am, yeah, I am sure every singer is grateful to hear your response. <laughs> <laughs> so I really, so I really owe it to, to them to bring me into this world because I'd already been very much uh, excited about the theater world. And of course, the instrumental music world was was where I was coming from. Uh, I, I, in graduate school, I had friends who were playwrights. And so theater was already a part of, of, of my world um, through my friends. And then being introduced to the singing voice, that really went together with theater. And, um, and that's what got me hooked. And then... Um, uh, the first that scene that you write at the end of that program was the first scene for Paul's case, which I wrote with my good friend Kate Wallet, who's one of those playwrights I mentioned earlier, and that became Paul's case, which um, went on to premiere at Urban Arias, and then actually they recorded it recently, so that was exciting for that project. It's to a beautiful forward. recording, by the way. It really turned out very well. Congratulations to everyone involved. So, uh, in that first workshop, um, can you remember a couple of things that you learned about writing for the Voice, both pro and con things that? oh yeah if i do this i get that and oh if i do this i get that <laughs> it's a couple of early memories of learnings about working with a human voice or writing for it or working with singers either is fine right and you're and you're referring to the workshops with aop or with with Cincinnati? Yeah. yeah that first that first set of workshop where you were working we were working on songs and then the, the the end of the workshop culminates in a scene right right um well i think the thing that First of all, the thing that 
I was so taken with is the way in which writing music for a singer is a real uh, collaboration. That it involves conversation, that it involves a sense of um, uh, awe, I think, on behalf of the composer, and a, and a real sense of uh, um, writing something for someone. Um, and I liked the sort of how concrete that was, and 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 so that became a part of how I wanted to work in all aspects of music. Um, and so that struck me first, you know, a more practical way is that I, I thing I learned was, was that op- really great melodies often look simple on the page. And that's, has a, that's the case for a lot of reasons. And I think one of them is that you want to really leave space for the voice and for the singer and for the words. And that, that I found for me, that took much more work. I would start out and I would write these sort of complicated melodies and I would, you know, a sort of overwrought piano parts and which is still maybe a weakness of mine. Um, and I found that it took a lot of work to, and a lot of, uh, um, confidence actually in a way to kind of back away from that, um, filling up the page and, and allowing, uh, the simplicity, which isn't simplicity. It's only, again, this is only something that appears simple on the page to really, um, to really let the music live, uh, uh, and let the singer really do what they can do with the music. And so I think that was my first uh, lesson. And then um, I'm trying to think of another another thing. You know, I, I like to write, especially early on, I wrote a lot of ensembles. And the only way to really write ensembles and to learn from them is to try them out and then experience them. That's what I love about opera, actually, is it's all it's experience-based. It's like a score is a hypothesis and then there's the experiment of the workshop and then you refine the hypothesis and that that's a sort of recursive cycle in search of this piece that sort of stands outside of everyone in a way so you're sort of in search of this this piece which feels you know if you're lucky feels true and so um with the ensembles i i remember that that process of proposing something ensemble hearing singers do it and then you know taking this these two eighth notes out that would reveal the mezzo soprano underneath and then taking these notes out and that would reveal an interesting harmony and um and finding the way to have all these voices speaking together because i think that's one of the really remarkable things of opera that's different than maybe theater in a way is that you can have lots of different uh characters speaking at the same time and we can hear everyone I mean, it's 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 very difficult to, to do both <laughs> performing and oh, and I've often said that the two most difficult things for me in the world of opera are writing a comedy and writing ensembles. And mm-hmm. I think one of the things that blew me away very early on in the process for fellow travelers is the Christmas party, because mm-hmm. there you have something that I won't say rivals the end of the second act of the Marriage of Figaro, but has a kind of complexity. You know, we. We read in the letters of Mozart how excited he is to write to his father, where he writes about writing the finale to the second act, and you know, a, a duet becomes a trio, a quartet, a quintet, sextet, septet, and you know, everybody at once, and all of the emotions are clearly available to the audience if you're listening carefully. And one of the beautiful things about the Christmas party in Fellow Travelers is that so many things are going on, and yet you know exactly what everybody is thinking, and it, it's it. You make it look simple. You make it look like it's a you know a, the finished jigsaw puzzle. But as you're saying, it takes a lot of work. It comes down sometimes to moving an eighth note, right? I mean, it's that it's right. that precise. Yeah, it's the illusion. It's it, because because with ensembles, thank you for that for that compliment, by the way. And 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 Greg Pierce and I, you know, really went back and forth on that scene. So a lot. So um, I'm glad to hear that it that it it works. Oh, it makes uh, a tremendous yeah. impact. Yeah, I, I think that um, that's that's the sort of counterpoint world that a composer lives in. And, and that world of so much of composition is about uh, coming to terms with a sort of paradox, like how can two things be happening at once? How can a melody work in the horizontal realm as well as work vertically with its uh, uh, partners, right, that are speaking at the same time, say in a Bach fugue? And so that's a paradox and it, and it involves um, all sorts of uh, experimentation. And it's just like you said, it's like a puzzle. And um, 
And to me, I get really excited about that, not just because I find it really exciting, but, but, but also because it seems like something that opera can do that is very, um, the, the sort of the way in which a, which a score can kind of uh, deal with time. It can, it can like work with time in a way that like gives um, one singer you know, a second and a half to say something that comes through the texture and you can kind of carve out that space so that all these different layers are, are hopefully um, breathing through the same texture. And so, and, it, and it, of course, sometimes people come up to me after an opera and they're like, oh, it was so great. It was like, um, it was like, uh, uh, it's like this, it felt natural on stage, you know, and, and they may not realize that everything is kind of gridded into the score, right? <laughs> and so that's part of the, hopefully, the, the joy of something like uh, uh, Figaro, as you mentioned, which I admire that uh, finale very much, that that there's a sense of, of two things happening at once. And, you know, and parties are like that, right? I mean, there's the sense oh, of yeah. what's going on, but recreating it in a way that, that gives a through line is something that uh, intrigues me. And, um, and so I, uh, I'm glad to hear you respond to that. Well, it's, you know, I don't know if it's true and I've never really heard it myself, but someone once told me that if you want to go to a party and overhear a conversation, you speak either twice as fast or half as fast as the conversation you're trying to overhear. And it's a little bit like that in an operatic ensemble. I mean, for me, one of the things that is so interesting about your ensemble work is that there's sort of the typical Rossini finale to the, let's say, the first act of one of his comedies. Let's take Italian in Algeria or Barber of Seville. And they are basically time stops Everybody stands and faces the front and says exactly what's on their mind. And Rossini knits it all together wonderfully. But it's a it's freeze frame, um, mm. as opposed to the more dynamic ensemble that you create in Fellow Travelers, where is yes, it's sort of freeze frame in that there's not a, there's not a lot happening, but there's still action going on. And mm. so for me, as you say so well, Greg, one of the amazing things that opera can do that nothing else can do, cinema and maybe television can do it with split screen a little bit. But you're creating multiple realities all at once. And uh, when it works, it's, it's pretty thrilling, I have to say. Well, I'd like to back up a little bit, though, for, um, and because you, you mentioned it towards the beginning of our conversation that you know, one of your first operatic experiences was Virginia Opera. Did you grow up in the Norfolk era? Where was, where was the early, the, your earliest home base memories? Um, yes, I, I uh, lived in uh, Virginia Beach. And... Um, which is you know, about half an hour drive uh, from Norfolk. And so, yeah, so I grew up in, in southeastern Virginia. And did the composing bug bite uh, when you were a little kid? How, when, did it, when did it take a hold of you? Well, I started out as a pianist, and I, um, and I really loved that. And I, I feel, uh, you know, in a way, it, it felt like a rebellion uh, for me because, you know, Virginia Beach, at least... Um, like my parents were, you know, really interested in everything but classical music and um, very supportive. And yet and yet that wasn't something that uh, I really knew anyone who was doing it. And so for me, it felt like this kind of secret world that I could participate in. And I uh, preferred to practice and, and do my scales rather than go out on the beach. And um, and so I got really into, into piano and. Um, and I had actually had a neighbor who was into piano as well, a, a good friend of mine to this day. And, uh, and you know, for some reason, and, you know, it's funny that you asked me this. I'm actually thinking through it right now. For some reason, I just sort of spontaneous, spontaneously started writing music. And I think part of what I was excited about by it back then was, you know, I, I thought of, like, classical music in a way as the secret. Like, no one, none of my friends knew anything about it. And I felt in some ways isolated. In some ways, that's what attracted me to it. Um, but I, I, I felt like I could say something. I felt like I could express myself without words, right? I could, I could say something that was really close to my heart, and I could, I could play it passionately. And, and yet, it was sort of, um, you, you weren't writing a poem. You weren't, you weren't writing a short story. It was there was something abstract to it that felt very it, safe for me. It was also and, your own secret code, in a fa in, in a ways. You could reveal yourself without revealing yourself. Yes, and it was it was it was a sort of um, it, it, it was a way to be expressive, and um, 
you know, and whereas, you know, no, my friends didn't really like classical music, they could respond to the, to the sort of virtuosity of the playing. Not that I was a virtuoso, but, you know, like every 14 year old young pianist, I sort of could specialize in all the stuff that looked really hard. That wasn't actually that hard. Like this. <laughs> um, but, uh, so yeah, so I was a bit of a show off on the piano and, and then I, uh, wanted, I wanted to play with others. And, um, and so I, I wrote, um, some sort of little concerto like pieces for there, there was a string orchestra at the local high school that, um, I joined and I learned how to play the viola and I was last year violist, but it meant that I could write for them, which is something that I, to this day, I'm really grateful that the, the um, conductor there, that she really supported that. And so I would write them pieces and they would play them. And, and eventually they, um, they said, you know what, you need to go see Adolphus Hale Stork, who is, as you know, a wonderful composer who um, uh, was teaching in Norfolk. And so I went to him and um, I took lessons from him. And that really transformed my world. And, and he introduced me to lots of rep beyond the piano rep and really fostered the composer side of me. And then eventually, I think because of my temperament, the composer side sort of won out in the sense that to this day, I'm not a big fan of jumping on stage and playing anymore. So, But you will at, uh, under, under slight duress, right? <laughs> if, yes, if asked, yes. if asked and nicely. Have, and I've done some conducting so and stuff like that. But usually, I, you know, I, I say I'm like a very, you know, I, I conducted the Requiem, which is a, a CD I, I, I put out. But, um, but generally... I, uh, composing is more my temperament. So when you were that 14 year old precocious kid, did you have a part, uh, did you have a wow party piece that you played that was flashier than it seemed and easier, e easier to play than it sounded hard to play? Well, how did you, how did you uh, clear the room as it were? Oh, Leonard good. Bernstein used to do it with the Copeland piano variations, but that was another thing. <laughs> I think this, maybe the C minor, uh, Chopin etude, you know, the sort of goes up and down, up and down, up mm -hmm. and down. Is yep. as hard as it looks. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> you know, so that's the, the, the part of that was the composing, right? Because part of a, a young pianist, you always feel kind of like, you know, when you, when you first try to play bar talk, you actually have to learn a completely new technique to, to learn bar talk. And, um, and so there was this way, you know, composing could, could serve you as a pianist because you could be like, okay, well, I can develop a piece that like plays to all my strengths. And this is, mm. and this is something you experience yourself. And of course, then it's something that you want to give to other performers that you work with later. You want to understand what's unique about a performer and their artistry. And I'm not talking about range, you know, I'm talking about the full artistry of, of who a performer is and then write something that really hopefully suits them. Um, and in that way, that sort of starts with, you know, in, in the case of me, you know, writing these flashy pieces. And so sometimes I play my own pieces because if, if I had trouble doing like double thirds or whatever, like I wouldn't have those in the pieces that I would like. <laughs> Selective avoidance, constructive avoidance. Exactly. <laughs> so when you study with Mr. Halesterk, who, of course, as you rightly say, has a has a connection with Cincinnati Opera. He was the author of a wonderful opera we premiered in the middle 2000s on the life of John P. Parker. Um, and uh, it's still one of my happiest early memories of working with the company, of working with Adolphus. And I've worked with him in his orchestral composer guy, uh, guys uh, with the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra and elsewhere. What are a couple of early things that Adolphus shared with you about the craft and the art that have stuck with you today. Do you have little? Mm -hmm. Do you have a couple little post-its that you keep on your keep on the wall above your composing desk that are uh, you know do this and don't do that and remember this from studying with Adolphus? Yeah, you know it, it's funny. I've been thinking about this as I've been teaching more composers, and um, you know it takes you back to your early days and your first uh, the first teachers who really made an impact on you and. Um, and uh, one of the things, uh, one of the things Dr. Hailsterk always said was, um, uh, if you make a mistake while you're playing with something, you know, playing, you know, playing your piece, like keep it for a while, like don't immediately move on. And so, because I would come in and I would, uh, you know, at that point I would always come in and play what I'd written, and then the, and then he would help correct the notation based on what I was playing. And um, and so he's like, oh, well, try it, you know, don't don't immediately 
label something a mistake, label it some sort of serendipity that maybe is pointing in a new direction. And so I, um, uh, I really think about that a lot today. I think about listening to the music, not what I think the music should be, um, and, and trying to, and I feel most comfortable with a piece when I feel like the piece is sort of leading me or, or, or when I try to do something and that thing fails, but then something else emerges out of it, something that is, is wiser than I am. Um, and I think, of, I think of Bach when I think of this. You know, when you, when you hear Bach, it's like Bach is like, he's, like, he's not trying to, he's writing this, this, this piece that, he, you know, he's speaking to something more than his own sort of musical interests, you know. Um, and so that, like, trying to look past your goals for the music and see the goals of the music and listen to the music and what's actually happening as a possibility rather than, you know, correcting things and sort of keeping things very much as you originally imagined them. And so that, that to me is a very organic approach to composing and ultimately revising through a piece to find the actual piece within it. And the other thing I'll mention, because it's something I think about with my students a lot is uh, I remember going in and asking Dr. Hellstruck, I said, um, I want to learn about sonata form. I want to write a concerto. <laughs> I've been writing small little sort of like called like Fantasias, which basically means no form. Whatever you want. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, whatever you want to call it. Right. <laughs> and so I was having this sort of, as a, as a 15 year old, I was having this crisis of, you know, feeling like I didn't have the theory I needed to, be a composer. There was this sense of, you know, um, you know, I'd gone to summer camp and, and met these kids who like, you know, were, you know, doing things with the Chicago symphony or like, you know, going to Juilliard pre-college or something like that. And so like, I came back, you know, to my, you know, uh, my high school, we don't have any, we didn't have, I think we had one little theory course that wasn't very good. So I was really asking like, you know, I want to learn more about this. And so he said, I remember this and he said, well, you go and write the first movement of the concerto. And then you'll bring it in and we'll talk about it. And that's how we're going to approach theory. And so it was this, you know, this approach that theory and musical knowledge comes from looking at the music itself. So looking at what you're doing naturally and then finding words to talk about it and to refine it, not the other way around. So there wasn't this kind of price of entry through theory. And that's something I talk to my students about a lot because I, Kirsten say, oh, I don't want to do this. I don't have enough theory yet. And so Hellstruck immediately got rid of that barrier. He's like, no, just do it. And, you know, and I, I admired him and I, you know, and I wanted to be a good student. So I'm like, well, he told me to write a, you know, a piano concerto movement, so I'm going to go do it. <laughs> so he, I would bring him back and he, uh, and it was just the piano part. So it wasn't orchestrated or anything, but um, and I brought it back to him and he's like, okay, well, you have a second theme here. And this is the sort of opening theme, which comes back at the end. We call that a recapitulation when it comes back. And so he was finding, because of course I'd played so many sonatas. He was basically saying, you know, sonata form. So we're going to have it come out naturally through your own sensibility. And then we're going to start talking about the codification of that. And that's actually how all that music was originally written. There's no such thing as sonata form um, in the 18th century. That was something that like theorists look back and then they decide on, oh, that's what all these mm -hmm. patterns reveal is this mm -hmm. theoretical idea, which is it's going backwards with it. So I always kept that with me that theory was needed to kind of be kept in the right relationship with making music. Well, it sounds like there's this wonderful analogy that you hear. Again, it's probably apocryphal, but you know, someone asking a great sculptor, you know, how they did, you know, the the two lovers, uh, Rodin or Michelangelo, you know, the Pietà, and you know, one of them is reported to have said, "Well, I take a big block of marble and mm -hmm. I just keep carving away everything that isn't the Pietà, and eventually I get there." Um, meaning that the creativity is the key and the craft yeah. serves the creativity. Yeah. And what a wonderful way of looking at composition too. Yeah. But then you have to be careful too, because, you know, speaking of that particular analogy, which is somewhat, is somewhat different, you know, I, it makes me think of, um, I've, I've written pieces and then I've revised them until there was nothing left. And I was like, oh, oh dear. <laughs> I, guess, I guess it's done because there's no piece. Left. Like literally it gets shorter and shorter and shorter. And I'm like, well, I guess that wasn't. Meant to you're, be the new, you're, the, you're the new Webern, right? <laughs> yeah. So. Well, 
And so you've you you get to this point now as a as a young composer. You're you're still a teenager. You're you're getting good instruction and and good advice from someone like Adolphus Hailstork. Is there a genuine uh, Greg Spears Opus One and published as such? Is there the is there a piece that you say this is my beginning? That's an interesting question, complicated question. Um, I mean, I. I can go back and listen to those pieces in high school and I can like, I'm actually really surprised how close I've actually gone away from some of that music and then come back to it in a way. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I can't describe exactly how it is. Cause if I played these pieces for you, I mean, they would be, they're, they're very sweet, but they're not, you know, terribly good. Um, but, uh, but I see how much of, I can see how much you change, but you also stay the same in a way. And uh, so, uh, but, you know, I was just actually thinking I was just sending a piece off um, from like, I think it was 2005. And I was like, oh, this is the piece. I I don't feel embarrassed of this piece. It was a piano, actually. And so, no. So I would say my first pieces are much more recent. You know, I I feel very, um, yeah, I feel very much like I... um, I don't want to hold on to pieces that I don't think are are sort of as as good as they can be. But I'm not at all ashamed of them either. I think I think those pieces in high school, I, I see what they are, and I I, I look back at them with uh, you with know, fondness, right? With, yeah, They're, fondness. You know, out. they say they they call them the sins of my youth, as opposed to Rossini yeah. when he writes all these wonderful pieces, the sins of my old age. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So um, here you are developing as a composer. You're 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 learning your craft through inspiration, which is a great way to do it. You've eventually um, discovered your your love of opera and operas, opera singers, and opera singing. What gets you to move to New York? That's a good question. You know, I had I did uh, I went to graduate school uh, for my PhD at Princeton and. You know, you're, you have to be there for, for two, sometimes three years. And so I was there for three years. But then there's this kind of moment where you're finishing your dissertation and, um, and you can really be anywhere. And, mm-hmm. and I was also teaching at the time. I was teaching in the writing program at Princeton. And I said, you know what? This is maybe the one chance I can go to New York and be sort of relatively sheltered in a way, you know, because I had health insurance through the school and I had a, um, a small stipend. And so I was like, you know, this is a once in a lifetime chance. So I went to New York and then I actually got um, uh, a position as a lecturer for that same uh, writing program in Princeton. And, and that was for five years. So I, I remember saying to myself, you have five years and then you have to, you know, go somewhere else, you know, and, um, and how long ago was that now? <laughs> that was, uh, that was, this was 2006. And, um, so, uh, so yeah, you've, so overstayed, I, you've overstayed your temporary visa then, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I, it's actually been one of the things I'm grateful that I really just really discovered how much composing is so central to, to, to what I want to do. And that I, um, and I'm grateful that actually it seems like, you know, like it's, it's working out so far and to be able to, to do that and, 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 um, get better and hear your pieces and improve and, and, and find the next piece. Um, I'm really glad, you know, one of the things that happened was, so I, I came out of, uh, Princeton and, 2006, but with these couple of years, and then 2008 happened, the, the financial crisis, and um, a lot of the jobs at universities sort of went away right at the time when I was getting my PhD, which, and that's what that's for, of course, you know, um, and so all of a sudden, a lot of jobs went away, and so it seemed like that two, what was going to be two years became five years, and then before I knew it, I was just, I was hooked, so... Mm-hmm. And so as a composer writing a dissertation, is that on a theoretical subject or is that actually a composition? What was your dissertation? Um, it's both. It's both. So I wrote on Mahler and then I wrote uh, um, uh, a song cycle for um, two sopranos and forehand piano, which was actually really the first, and now I think about it, it was really the first, even before AOP, 
the first piece where I really wrote songs and I, and I felt like, oh, I can, I can hear my own voice within this world. I think before that, the, the singers and the, and the composers were really kept separate to some degree. Like I remember in, at Eastman, there, was, there wasn't a lot of crossover. I, I was at Eastman with, um, you know, a Brian Mulligan, for example, and like, you know, I only met him as a, as a, you know, in a professional sense recently, you know, so there wasn't always that um, relationship wasn't always fostered by faculty. Um, and so that dissertation piece for Princeton was really got me excited about the voice and then the AOP and then Paul's case. And then, you know, what happens next. <laughs> I do. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. But one, one thing that's fascinating to me is that, there are there are threads that seem to run through your life. You're you're born and raised in Virginia, and of course, the your next major opera, um, Castor and Patience, takes you back to the part of the country where you grew up, and all of all of what you sort of is is in your neurons, as it were, as a as a human. But you make a very important friendship while you are at Princeton, that of uh, a woman by the name of Tracy K. Smith. How did the two of you meet? Tracy is the librettist for Castor and Patience and a dear friend of yours, I know. How did you, all, how did you come together with this amazing lady? Well, that was, um, as, I, as I mentioned, I sort of had two years to finish my degree. And then once I finished my degree, I had this... Um, uh, I was then teaching as a lecturer, a part-time lecturer, um, sort of continuing on the teaching I'd been doing as a, as a graduate student. And, um, but I wanted to still stay in New York as so many, uh, you know, part-time lecturers at Princeton, a lot of, a lot of, there's a lot of commuting going on. And, um, <laughs> and so, and I had uh, one of the um, other faculty members in my um, area was uh, Rath Allison, who is um, now Tracy's husband, um, and he was. We were sort of commuting together, and um, and uh, he started dating Tracy, and so, and then they got married, and you know, but well before that, I met Tracy, and because uh, they were both living in Brooklyn, and so yeah, so that's that's how that happened, and uh, yeah, it was like, gosh, that was two thousand while ago now. That's a long time yeah. ago. So Paul's case happens and is a wonderful success. And uh, this doesn't mean you're not writing instrumental music and you're turning solely to opera, but opera takes a, takes a big leap forward in your life with the entry into your life of a project that in some ways uh, was serendipitous and some ways improbable, some ways out of the blue. Can you recall first the first time you heard anything about what would become fellow travelers? Sure. I was, um, there was a workshop for uh, Paul's case. It was like a one act. It was the second act actually. And it was at Manhattan School of Music. Um, and, but through a different program, but it was located there. And, um, and Kevin Newberry had gone to, uh, I think Charles Jarden at American Opera Projects. And he said, you know, I'm looking for, um, you know, new, exciting opera composers. And, and Charles said, well, you, you know, it just so happens that in a, in a week or so, there's a uh, workshop. You should go check it out. It's Paul's case. And so at that time, Kevin had, along with Sterling, discovered the book Fellow Travelers and sort of fallen in love with it and, and had found Greg Pierce, who they who was a friend and they wanted to adapt it. And so Kevin's like, well, let's all go check out this new, this new composer. The new kid on the block, as it were. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and so they, they came up and, and watched that. And I remember it was, it was very lightly staged, but I remember there was this kind of moment at the end where they turned all the lights out and it was kind of a dramatic moment. I remember that workshop. Um, but, uh, but Kevin was really excited about what he had heard and, um, and I, you know, I sent him recordings and everything. And then I remember meeting Kevin and, and then he said, you know, read this book and see what you think about it. And I remember reading, I can really remember the first time I read the book because it's, you know, for me, I just, there was all these details in the book and, and I thought it was, you know, a beautifully written book and, and, and moving, but it just left me with a certain kind of feeling and mm. it sort of goes back to like what brought me to music in the first place is there's a kind of feeling that like I can't really quite put words on it. And um, 
and it's sort of it's sort of like an emotion, but it's more complicated than that. It's sort of a, a feeling I got when I read it, and I knew from that feeling that I could I could make an opera, you know, that was inspired by this. And that's that's different than reading a book and being like, oh, the story is great, and there's going to be all these characters, and there's a big chorus part. And that's very different than that. It's like something that's kind of harder to talk about. So. Um, but then I went back to Kevin. I said, yes, I, I would be excited to, to work on that. And then I met Greg and, um, you know, it's actually very serendipitous. And you, sometimes when you sort of meet somebody before you work together, you know, you don't necessarily know whether it's going to work out, but, but Greg was really a wonderful, wonderful guy. And we really sort of worked well together. Well, you hit on something though, just now when you were talking about this, that goes back to uh, your beginnings as a composer and your conversations with Adolphus Hailstork, because as he pointed out to you, um, sometimes your emotions and the what we call creativity, which again is very difficult to describe, um, override any sort of practical considerations or technique. Mm-hmm. And what really has to speak first to a creative artist is an emotional reaction. Not an intellectual reaction, like, oh, yeah, mm-hmm. you can divide it up into this many scenes, and there are this many characters, and mm-hmm. I can see how the dramaturgy could work here, and we have to cut that. And the other thing, it's how you feel. And if right. you're successful at what you do, at the end of the evening, at the end of the evening of the performance of Fellow Travelers, or Paul's Case, or Castor and Patience, or your completion of the Mozart Requiem, or any of your numerous instrumental pieces, you, you want that audience to have, maybe not your feeling, but you want to, them to have an emotional response to what you do mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, which is which is terrific. So, you've got uh, fellow travelers happens. I remember the workshop in Cincinnati and us all being blown away by it, and further workshopping it and bringing it to bringing it to the stage in 2016. It's a, as far as new operas go, it's a runaway hit with what nearly ten productions now. I think there's a tenth one maybe in the works. Yeah, unfortunately, I think some of them might have, might have gone canceled. <laughs> We have to take the long yeah, we have to take the long we have to take the long view on all of this stuff. Yeah, but, we're hoping to reemerge. Well, but I want to take a, a a little byway before we come uh, before we go forward because one of the things you talk about and is 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 so enjoyable to when I speak with you as a composer and as a person is that um, you're not necessarily led by your emotions. But your emotions play an incredibly important part in your creativity and what you decide to do and how you decide to do it. And I'm not saying that you're anti-intellectual, but it sounds as though you work very, very hard um, as an artist to make certain that you stay true to your emotional reaction to an idea or something as much as your intellectual one. Uh, Am I close Mm. on this? I mean, it sounds... Yeah, I think I, you know, I think emotion is definitely a part of it. You know, when I think of, when I think of uh, that feeling I got from fellow travelers, it's not emotion's not quite the right way. It feels emotional, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's more it's closer to a sense of like truth, if that makes sense. Mm. Very sure. Um, there's a sense of like uh, that there's something at stake, and there and there's uh, it's. Again, it defies words for me. So, and this is what I. This again was always draw, draws me to to music, as I feel like like music is where I can't really. I start to get kind of like, well, like what's happening right now, um, and that's where music steps in for me. And uh, yeah. and so and and so for me, it's not. You know, a lot of people come to me and they say, "Oh, this 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 um, this." story or book would make a great opera and they start talking about emotion they're like it has high emotion and then this happens and then this happens and i'm always kind of like oh that's not really what i'm talking about (laughs) about emotion you know because like emotion oftentimes is very complicated and and there's like you know many emotions at once and that's part of what i like about fellow travelers is the way that like 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 hawk never has one emotion at a time you know there's like four you know and you're trying to figure out what's the what's the you know combination um and how do you write a piece of music that somehow supports that because it's 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 not just like oh you want to write like an angry chord followed by a you know you know like it doesn't work that way and so it's more like a sense of like being able to like oh this 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 text or this story or this project is going to allow me to like I'm, I'm going to be able to serve this in a way that feels true. And um, 
and I think that that's, that's a complicated thing, but, but emotion is part of it, definitely. And uh, not to dwell too much on fellow travelers, but I know it well enough to, um, to have an admiration for its moving parts as well. But you brought to the composition of fellow travelers your, uh, a, a passion of yours, which is music of the medieval troubadours and trouvères in some of the melismatic writing for the voices, in some of the sort of sinuous quality, the bardic quality of some of the storytelling. Is that something that is unique to fellow travelers, or is that is that something that crops up in other pieces of yours? How do you how did you come upon that for part of your storytelling arsenal for that opera? Yeah, you know, I you know I think I've been thinking about that um, description because uh, you know I I think it's complicated in the sense that like when I wrote fellow travelers, I was just writing music that felt. Again, I was trying to follow the text. I was trying to write, I was trying mm. to follow the characters and mm-hmm. trying to listen to what felt right, like what music sounded like the kind of music that Hawk would sing here. And um, and and then I step back, and this this goes back to, to Dr. Hellstork. Then you step back, then you start asking yourselves questions about what just happened. Right. And maybe that's what you're talking about. Like I think, mm-hmm. like, you mm. know, I can actually be highly in, you know, like kind of like academic in a way, you know, but it's always after initial impulse, right? It's always an analytical thing that comes later after something more complicated happens and, um, and something that's, that's more hard, hard to kind of like understand with words. And so, and so just like Hailstorm's like, you write the movement of the concerto and then we'll go back and we'll look at it and we'll start putting labels on things and talking about it in an intellectual way. Um, so I think that's sort of how fellow travelers probably happened. And then I looked at this and I said, oh, that melismatic music kind of reminds me of Trouber music. And I really liked Trouber music and I was listening to it at the time. So there's a sense of like, in some ways, I, it shouldn't overdetermine how people hear that piece. Because that piece, because I worked very hard for that piece to just feel like it's a sort of world in and of itself. And mm-hmm. I, I don't want the that melismatic music to necessarily directly reference something. It's more just a kind of, approach to that world that felt like it made sense and that the characters seem to seem to accept you know and we're not telling any tales out of school but for when it comes time for the premiere of castor and patience and people hear the orchestration and the melodic uh, Mm -hmm. contours of the of that Mm -hmm. particular opera it has a very different feel it um as you so eloquently said um in a conversation we were having in new york after that uh, new york presentation is that the orchestration and I heard it when we did the orchestra workshop, the orchestration of Castor and Patience, which takes place in the South, is all humidity and heat. The, the you know, the, the almost there's a, there's a feeling of the Spanish moss that pervades the piece. So you've made conscious decisions, again, always driven by the story and the text. Mm-hmm. The orchestration of Castor and Patience is very layered. So there's like, um, you know, and you heard this in the workshop, I, I think, where there's this is sort of a, a musical layer that that might be an aria, and then there's like another sort of orchestrational layer that might be behind that, or sometimes feel like it comes in front of that music. It's hard to sort of describe mm-hmm. in words, and it's something that actually is completely unrepresentate uh, unrepresentable in a piano vocal, and so it's like this kind of invisible part of the piece until 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 you hear the orchestra until yeah. the orchestra walks into the room. And, um, but that's very different than, than fellow travelers because fellow travelers, I think the orchestration, and I say this not as a criticism of fellow travelers, is a sort of a flatness to it. It's not about layers, right? It's about, and for me, that's the kind of like 1950s, it's mm-hmm. a world of like surface, right? Of like ads and catalogs, you know? And whereas Castor and Patience, I think is so much about this present day narrative in which, there's all this this sort of uh, these memories and the past and history and the history of this country. And so there's a sense of layeredness that I think comes through in the instrumentation and through the orchestration, which there's, you know, a nice size orchestra to do that with. That's something that I'm excited about, you know, often because, you know, Kazim and I are sort of the, the ones who have the biggest sort of perspective on that because he's working directly with the full score. But it's something that even in the workshop, it's hard to... to um, to again represent in the workshop so it's something that i'm excited about that piece and and definitely a difference between that and fellow travelers you're you're a composer who lives in new york 
and you are living in the Upper West Side of the of New York City. The the well, in normal times, the home of incredible creativity and artistry and artists and whatnot. But you're also a composer, and of course, the stereotype that most of us have of a, of a composer is you know complete quiet. You want to be up in your mountain cabin, far away from everybody else. But mm-hmm. do you write in the middle of the maelstrom of New York City? Oh, well, you know, New York isn't that loud, um, as you can probably tell from this podcast. I'm just sitting in my apartment. Um, actually, yeah, you have you have a you have a little oasis. You're right, <laughs> but you don't mind composing in in the in the heart of a city. I guess part of what I'm getting at is that there's so much stimulus uh, available to anybody in the city of New York, and that it it sounds as though you thrive on it. It 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 actually energizes you. Yes. Yes, that's an easy. That's an easy guy. So, um, you've also had a, a wonderful project that I wish we could play a musical excerpt of it for you, uh, for our listeners here. But they can they can seek it out eventually, I suppose. But you engaged with one of the iconic pieces of classical music that is also one of the great question marks of classical music: the unfinished Requiem of Mozart. So we all know the story that um, Mozart was able to complete at least. Um, into a bit of the lacrimosa movement and then the rest is or much of the rest of it is conjecture or scraps of um, the story of uh, you know Zussmeyer being asked to complete it by Mozart's widow but Mm -hmm. you had an opportunity to engage with the piece and I'd love for you to tell the the story of how it came about and how you made your decisions as to what to do yeah well you know um, I was asked by a, a conductor who conducts a uh, sort of an amazing choir called Seraphic Fire in Miami, and they're kind of flown in from all around the nation. Um, really brilliant singers, uh, but choral singers. And um, and he wanted to do the Mozart Requiem, but he didn't like the Sussmeyer completion. And Sussmeyer was one of Mozart's associates, um, and uh, and it had been written, you know, quickly. And and Sussmeyer was grieving and. And so a lot of people don't think it's a great completion. It's the traditional one. So uh, for those of you who may have a, a, a Mozart Requiem CD, you probably have three movements, um, the uh, um, Benedictus Agnus Dei and the Sanctus, which I just listed out of order. Um, Sanctus is first. Uh, that is all Seuss Meyer's work. And then right. the, the return of the final of the first movement in the end, that was something that was imagined to be in Mozart's plan, but it's still Mozart's music. And then Sussmeyer did some orchestration, some completion of earlier movements, but there were sketches that he worked from. And um, anyway, so this conductor didn't like that completion. He thought he'd commission a new one. And so, uh, so I went in and I was a lot of anxiety about it. But, you know, when I started looking more about like what a requiem actually was, it occurred to me that, you know, or just was revealed to me in the history that, what we think of as a requiem is very different than what it actually was. Like it was a service Mm. and a requiem would have always had like Catholic services today, it would have had a a mixture of music from different authors and and possibly from different time periods as well. And a requiem Mm. that was written would have certain sort of elaborate movements that had been reset. And then anything that the composer had not written would be sung as plain chant often. Hmm. So that's of course not from the same era as Mozart or or um, or um, other you know uh, composers who may have written requiems, especially in the 18th century. And so then requiem sort of got taken out of that context, which was a, a context of like you could have an organ, you know, uh, improvisation. You know, and this is 18th century stuff. And then in the 19th century and later, requiem became a concert piece. Like it became detached from the original impulse of the form and that's when it became something that was in the concert hall became something secular and so for me i use this all as an elaborate justification for like why it would make sense to add 21st century music completing this of why i shouldn't necessarily go in and try to imitate mozart like i'm not, that, that was not something i was interested in doing um nor is it something that i could have done successfully and so my music, while it sort of clearly speaks to aspects and certain aspects of Mozart's plan, in no way tries to hide the fact that it is new music written by a different composer in a different century with a different kind of set of theoretical and philosophical underpinnings. 
And so that was sort of my way in. That's that's once I figured that out in my head, I'm like, okay, I think I can do this. But even so, it was pretty intimidating. And did you go to the premiere performance? I did. I did. And then they did uh, some performances in, in South Florida. And then they um, did it again on tour, actually. And um, and then I think it's been done in, in Indiana and uh, Montreal and hopefully. Well, it is a wonderful alternative because as, as, uh, as that conductor said, the Zussmeyer is, uh, is, you can almost tell, it's like someone switches off a light um, in the Lacrimosa mm-hmm. when the, the more pedestrian completion takes over. So mm-hmm. hats mm-hmm. off to you. So now um, the, the pupil has become the teacher and you, you're teaching composition as well at your, at your still very tender years. What's it like to, to have the, as it were, the shoe on the other foot? What's it like to be a teacher of composers? Mm, well, it's, uh, it's fun. You know, you know I, as a teacher, I really started and I was teaching more in classroom sort of settings. Uh-huh. And, um, and one of the things I think is really important about being a teacher is that you have enough energy that you're not focused on yourself. You're not too worried about what you're doing, that you're comfortable enough with the lesson plan and so that everything can be sort of about the students. And, um, and that takes a lot of work actually, because you have to try to make sure what you're saying makes sense and that you have all the right handouts and all that stuff. Um, <laughs> but that is the goal. And, and so I take that to my students who are, you know, not in the classroom, but individual composition students. But I realize that all of a sudden teaching is much more personal. You know, when I'm talking to a student who, uh, who may be having anxiety about their, their, the, you know, their theory technique or their theory knowledge, I'm, I'm t- I can't help but to be taken back to when I was 17 years old and feeling that way. And, um, and I think that's good, actually. I mean, I think that does enrich your experience as a teacher, but it also makes it a much more reflective one. And, um, and so I'm really enjoying that, actually teaching composers who are going to compose for a living, you know, or they might do other things, but that they are in that track. And so it's, it's exciting and it's great to be, you know, in touch with, uh, um, you know, the undergrads and, and, and get their perspectives on things. And it's been, it's been really, really fun. I, I sort of miss it now that summer is here. And as a teacher of composition, I mean, I know, you know, we have, we have all the generational things of one generation to the next and sees the world differently and hears the musical world differently. But in the short period of time between your own sort of, for lack of a better way of putting it, rise to prominence or your own, your own maturing and busy activity of being a composer, and these young women and men who are now just starting out, uh, you know, 15 or so years later on, do you sense anything different um, in terms of the way they approach music or what their musical appetites are or what the influences they feel are important to them? What's your what's your read on some of your young charges? Yeah, I think they're very connected to the world. You know, part of it is I teach I teach at Purchase College, which is is close to New York, uh, but not in New York, um, but within an hour on the on the commuter train. And I think my students are very connected to the to the real world, so to speak. And they um, and uh, and so there's the sense when I went to school, it was this sense that like New York was a million miles away, and the professional world was a million miles away. And they're much more engaged and 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 what the classical music world is and what they want it to be and what they don't want it to be. And I think um, that is, is, is heartening. And I'm, I'm, I, I, I enjoy those conversations that I have with them. And then, you know, but then sometimes I have conversations with them and I, you know, and I, um, you know, and there's other things where they may feel like they still have to write a certain way, like, you know, sort of maybe like an atonal style. And I'll be like, oh, you know, you don't have to do that. So there's some things that are challenges that um, that I remember going through in a similar way as well. So there's a mix. So some things don't change, as it were. <laughs> the anxiety about whether you're doing the right thing is probably part of growing up as well. Yeah. So yeah. hats off to you for reassuring them and, and giving them the kind of freedom that Adolphus Tailstork gave you as a composer. Yeah. Um, I know it's a bit of a silly question, but if, if, if money and time were no object, is there a project that you'd like to do? Um, is there is there a ring cycle? Is there mm-hmm. a massive symphony? What what's a what's a what's a dream project for composer Greg Spears? Oh, you know, I I I feel like this is. I hope this doesn't sound like a, a 
I'm dodging your question, but um, I really feel like what I'm writing has to feel like that project for me. Like, huh. um, and if you're it, not dodging the question at all, by yeah, any means. And if it's not, then I feel um, I'm not going to be able to do it. And, uh, and not, I don't mean like literally not do it. I'm not gonna be able to do it in a way that I'm satisfied. I'll get so kind of uncomfortable about it. I'll like, you know, um, but, uh, so I'm very, I, I very much like think a lot about like, about projects and which doesn't mean they all work out, you know, but all the, it doesn't mean that every piece is, 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 uh, uh, your best piece, but, um, but yeah, but you know, I can answer in a more general way. I do want to write more orchestral music, and right now I'm writing a lot of piano music. So I, I uh, written a lot of piano music in the last few months, and and used this moment as a chance to to go uh, to do something that doesn't require uh, huge forces, and and that's been. Nice. Again, you know, going along with the theme, sort of reconnecting with those first pieces that I wrote, which, um, you know, came from the piano. And uh, Are you still avoiding double thirds or are you writing double yes, thirds? Yes. You know, I originally when I wrote it, I was like, oh, maybe I can play this. And then, of course, it got, you know, too complicated. <laughs> well, Craig, we could talk for another hour. And I know we will have another opportunity, especially mm-hmm. as we get closer to the time for the mm-hmm premiere of Castor and Patience, but mm-hmm. I can't thank you enough for taking time uh, mm-hmm. to share some of your thoughts and some of your early memories with us. And I always end these podcasts with the same set of questions, and you are always entitled to take the Fifth Amendment on any of these questions you do not wish to answer. So here goes. Um, what do you normally have for breakfast? Oh, goodness. That's an easy one because I don't actually eat anything for breakfast. So I just have a cup of coffee. So... Wow. You start out, in other words, your first meal of the day is nerves. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you, I, I yeah. think there was a time when I would have like a big bowl of cereal and then I would like get drowsy in about 10 minutes. So yeah, coffee, <laughs> coffee, coffee starts, gets me. Out. starts me out. <laughs> How do you deal with stress? Oh, goodness. Stress. What's that? Um, I used to do a lot of hot yoga, but I can't do that anymore. So, um, So instead of doing hot yoga in the morning. I, I tend to do a lot of jogging now because we live near two wonderful parks. And so I jog a lot. Do you have a particularly important mentor, either for your life as a composer or just uh, being a human? Hmm. Well, I I think I'll go, I've already talked a lot about Adolphus Hailstorm, but I'll go sure. to some of my other teachers. I had a really wonderful analysis teacher, um, musical analysis, uh, and her name was Joan Panetti, or her name is Joan Panetti. And uh, I think a lot about her and what she taught me. Which it sounds, Um, yeah, go ahead. What are you reading right now? What am I reading? Well, yesterday I actually started rereading something, um, some uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates essays, which is, his writing has really sort of uh, been a strong presence in my mind over the past few years, both with the project that Tracy and I are doing, um, particularly his landmark essay, The Case for Reparations, which is from 2014. Um, yeah, so I was reading that. Um, it's, it's pretty powerful rereading it today, um, especially with Black Lives Matter gaining so much momentum as a movement. And also on my, uh, my nightstand is um, Rachel Eliza Griffiths, who you know very well, um, sure. who uh, just came out with a brand new book of poetry, and it's called Seeing the Body. And it's, it's unique because it has both her poetry, but also her photography, and they're, they're uh, sort of woven into one another. And so I'm a big fan of both her visual art and her writing. So it's been exciting to read that. And I think it just came out last month. So you should you should check it out, too. Thank you. Um, are there TV series or podcasts that you enjoy on a fairly regular basis? Um, I, John and I have been listening to this podcast called Revolutions. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's very, very detailed, like almost insanely detailed. Um, so that I've been I've been watching. Um, the Criterion Collection. It's kind of like movies, streaming movies for film nerds. 
Mm. And so classic films like film noir or great uh, undersung Mm. classics of the genre or? Yeah, sort of a a bunch, you know, a lot of stuff. So, but like Mm -hmm. uh, Criterion Edition sort of runs it. So if if you know that um, brand, you can imagine what it involves. Uh, But like, for example, I've been watching a lot of Chantal Ackerman films as a Mm -hmm. um, filmmaker, um, uh, late 20th century. um, And so I've been watching stuff like that and, John will never watch it with me though, so he doesn't like phones. <laughs> do you have do you have a phone app or phone apps that you find most useful, more useful than others? No, <laughs> no, I do. Um, uh, my friends make fun of me because I have like no apps, and uh, and I sort of melt down when I have to download one. But I actually uh, sort of as a joke, I did find a metronome app the other day that came in really handy. But then I found my actual metronome, and so I deleted it. Um, <laughs> I'm sure there's I'm sure there's some app. I'm sort of technologically challenged, as you, you probably know. <laughs> Do you you've spent a lot of time in Cincinnati already, and you may not be able to recall off the top of your head, but uh you've dined out a fair amount in your time in Cincinnati. Is there a restaurant you and we hope that will be reopening soon that uh, that you have particularly enjoyed? Is this in Cincinnati or New York? I, I missed the beginning. Cincinnati, a Cincinnati restaurant. Cincinnati. Um, you know, I remember eating and I just enjoying like so many restaurants. Wasn't there like a restaurant that was like on a hill overlooking the city? But oh uh, yes, uh, that's by where Prima. Mark used to live. <laughs> it's yeah, it's it's called it's called Prima Vista, and it's a good old fashioned. You're talking about the good old fashioned Italian restaurant that has an oh, spectacular yeah, city, the city. Actually, I think it was over. Oh, not Adams. Yes, probably on Mount Adams. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's a lot of them. That's true. Well, we'll we'll give you a pass on that one for now. So you come back for sure. Okay. I've um, it for now. Yeah. I'm I'm sure you've received career advice from a lot of people. Is there something yeah. that has stuck out uh, that you have found particularly good and accurate that's helped you in your work? Um, I'm gonna um, I'm gonna reference somebody who didn't tell me this directly, but I read it in his biography. So I remember Tchaikovsky at some point was talking to like a young sort of wannabe composer and Tchaikovsky's like, well, what you got to know is that it's incredibly labor intensive, you know, that, mm-hmm. and, and you have to get very comfortable with the work of it. And I think, you know, most things are like this, but I think there's a, there's maybe a, a misconception. And I know I had one when I was younger that, um, that there was a lot of inspiration and not as much work. And so perspiration. Of- yeah, exactly. Right. What do they say? It's 99% perspiration and 1% inspiration. Yeah. And uh, especially as you move into opera, that that gets even more extreme. And, you know, just this sheer amount of paper that is involved. And and, um, and so that's something I think about a lot. Um, I'm wondering. Yeah, maybe maybe yeah, to, to be nice. <laughs> that sounds like a great, you know, but to be, you know, um, you know, to, to, to take care of your relationships in the field, you know, because it's, uh, um, you know, uh, I think that's important. And, and so that's, well, it's a, it's, you know, it's one of the last old fashioned professions where personal relationships count for a lot. It's, it's very good advice. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have a favorite musician outside of classical music, someone you're drawn to? Oh, there's a, there's a lot of, of course, um, you know, I've been listening a lot to uh, Stevie Wonder's albums from the from the seventies. Oh, me too. Some of my favorites. I, yeah, I'm uh, sort of blown away every time I go back to those. Um, I uh, I've been listening to um, Brian Eno. I listen to the sort of ambient works of Brian Eno. I think I'm, in in all music, I'm drawn to like, you know, both both the sound of the music, but also sort of the form, like the formal things that are going on, the formal games that are happening. And I, Stevie Wonder, those albums are just remarkable in that sense, as are Brian Eno's ambient albums. Um, I've been re- listening to Arthur Russell. I don't know if you've heard of Arthur Russell. I don't know Arthur Russell, no. Yeah, no. Uh, uh, from the 80s. Uh, I've been listening to Liz Wright, wonderful singer. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, the last question is... Um, uh, is uh, particularly, I think, appropriate for a composer. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's. Uh, I always ask, do you have an elevator speech? You know, the short, uh, the short argument you use to convince someone to try mm-hmm. opera for the first mm-hmm. time. 
you meet them in an elevator, you meet at a convention, you're, uh, the waiter in the restaurant says, what do you do for a living? Oh, I'm a composer and I write mm -hmm. opera. Opera? Yeah. I've never been to an mm -hmm. opera. Right, do, you right. have a, do, you have a, do you have a standard response? Well, I have a Cincinnati elevator speech, which means it's a very long one because your elevator takes forever to go from one That's true. <laughs> you can have a meeting in our elevator. You're absolutely right. <laughs> you can have a rehearsal in five minutes and be late <laughs> that elevator. It's so um, true. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Uh, let me see. Okay, so now I actually have to make the speech. I have to... I have to so. Well, you know, the one thing I've been thinking a lot about recently is the value of being able, the immediacy of opera. Like we think of opera as something kind of grandiose or something that involves so many people and a big orchestra and it's complicated, and it's expensive. Um, but then there's another side of it where it's, it's, it's a singer singing to you without any mediation of technology. We live our lives these days through these little screens and little nickel sized speakers. And, and there's something about opera that it does, it's really not mediated by technology. I know that sounds, uh, my hope is that that actually sounds even more exciting now, now that so much of our lives are done yeah. through technology. And so to really be able to engage with this incredible ritual of opera with involves so many people and yet have it all have the intimacy of sort of direct communication. I think that's something that at least I'm coming thinking a lot about now living without that, you know, and, and, and being grateful for recordings and streaming and all those things at the same time, feeling a melancholy that uh, and appreciation for the, for the, for the real thing in person. And, and it's making me think more about wanting to be able to talk really well about that. I'm not doing it now, but I'm, I'm thinking about it. And, and I'm, that's my goal is one of my goals is to come out of the COVID moment and being able to, to really succinctly get at what is so irreplaceable about a live experience with the power of the operatic voice, you know, unmediated. Craig Spears, thank you so much for your time and for your insights. And uh, we look forward to having you with us in Cincinnati soon and uh, take care of yourself in the midst of all of this. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Evans Mirages, the Harry T. Books Artistic Director for Cincinnati Opera. This podcast was a production of Cincinnati Opera and was produced for Cincinnati Opera by John Brennan of Sonic Signatures. 